Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. If you're like me, there is nothing more satisfying than a great meal. Am I right? But did you know that what you eat can affect how you feel? It's true. Your diet may be affecting your mood. In fact, certain foods may be just what the doctor ordered for treating things like depression, anxiety, even PTSD and Alzheimer's disease. Stick around because on the menu today, we're going to share the secret recipe for feeling great. Hello there and welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. I'm Bob Peacock. We've all been there. We try to eat fairly healthy meals, but then you get stressed from work or depressed and anxious just from watching the news. And many of us turn to our favorite comfort foods like macaroni and cheese, a bag of potato chips, perhaps a glass of wine or a dish of ice cream. Am I the only one? Well, as comforting as these foods may sound, they might be making us feel even worse. Today, we're going to talk with an expert about how eating certain foods can impact your mood and even your brain function. My guest today is Dr. Uma Naidu, a physician and faculty member of Harvard Medical School. Dr. Uma is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, a nutrition expert, a professional chef, and one of the pioneers in a fairly new field called nutritional psychiatry. It's all about how different foods can affect your brain and your behavioral health. She also established the Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, the first clinic of its kind in the United States. And she has also written an international bestseller titled, This Is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more. In some countries, the book is simply titled The Food Mood Connection. Dr. Uma, welcome. It is such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Bob. I'm very excited to speak to you as well. The, 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 the Food Mood Connection is a fascinating subject, and I learned so much from reading your book. When many of us think about making changes to our diet, we do it because we need to lose weight or we need to improve our physical health because maybe we have prediabetes or high cholesterol. We rarely rarely think about making diet changes to improve our mental well-being. As people are starting to hear about nutritional psychiatry for the first time, what do you want them to know? I think that the most important thing is to appreciate that there is this connection. You see, like you so um, eloquently mentioned, Bob, people don't make this connection. Yet, how many times have we had a headache? And what do we do? We might take a Tylenol or another pill to relieve that headache. And what do you do with the pill? You grab a glass of water, you take the pill, you swallow it, drink a sip of water, and you probably forget about it, hoping your headache goes away. But think about that for a second. The, the pull goes to your stomach. It goes through your digestive system to your gut, and it relieves your headache, which is usually around the neural tissue in your brain. Food is not that dissimilar. The mechanisms may vary, and it's related to the gut-brain connection, which is a newer advance in medical science over the last decade and a half. So what I want people to know is that food really does impact how you feel emotionally, and we should be paying attention to how easy it is to be eating differently for mental health. 
Your book is is part self-help book, part diet book, and I mean that in a good way, not the fad diet way, uh, and part cookbook. Uh, it has specific information on foods or even spices, which surprised me, that we should and shouldn't eat if we're, we're feeling different behavioral symptoms or disorders. Uh, on a Harvard Health blog, uh, a doctor wrote uh, an entry that compared the brain to an expensive car. And it said, to keep your brain running smoothly, you've got to give it premium fuel. I know this can get really complicated really quickly, but you explain it so well. So how does what we eat affect our mood? The connection between gut and brain actually started back when we were embryos. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. It turns out that the gut and brain are two separate organs, but in the embryo, as our bodies are developing, they arise from the exact same tissue. So they are actually connected because of their origin. Then as they form these two organs in life and they separate, they are still connected by our 10th cranial nerve, vagus nerve, which I like to call a two-way superhighway, which works in a bidirectional way. This nerve connects the brain to the gut and the gut to the brain and allows for chemical messages to be sent all the time, every day. So that's another point of communication. But then many people know of serotonin, the happiness hormone. Right. And it is, you know, serotonin that is being targeted in medications such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And yet 90 to 95% of serotonin as well as the receptors are in the gut. So it's important for people to understand and put those factors together and if someone has ever been prescribed a medication like Prozac or Zoloft, which is an SSRI, they may often develop some gastrointestinal side effects when they stop that medication. This is because of the location of those serotonin receptors. So it, it just helps to fill in the picture for people and starts to impress upon them the connection that the food we eat starts to impact our emotional health as well. I was so surprised. 95% of your body's serotonin is made in the gut and only 5% in the brain. I thought it was the other way around. You know, I think we, we all did until research showed otherwise. And the gut-brain connection, the emerging science around this gut microbiome has really emerged in the, in the last decade and a half. We've known about serotonin and the receptors for, for some time, but connecting it with the gut-brain science has been newer. You know, if, if docs went to medical school more than a couple of decades ago, they were not learning about the gut microbiome because the science simply hadn't followed to that point. And uh, yet Hippocrates made this connection eons ago. So it's great that, you know, the research and, and scientific data is now being filled in for us to help us explain that. So is... Chocolate, uh, a mood enhancer, like many of us hope it is? Chocolate is, but it depends on the type of chocolate. We, unfortunately, I'm not talking about the candy bars that many of us are used to eating. We're really referring to natural dark chocolate, um, usually 70 75% or darker, because the process in which it's made uh, is rich in cacao flavonols, which are great for the brain. It's rich in serotonin, magnesium, and other nutrients that actually make it a pretty healthy food. Unfortunately, I think it's getting one's palate used to that flavor and beginning to appreciate it, because many Americans are really, as part of that standard American diet, are used to candy and candy bars, which are very different and not the type of chocolate we're referring to. Oh, okay. 
Okay. Um, does the, the food mood theory work with everyone, or do foods affect us differently depending on things like ethnicity or uh, whether we're male or female, young or old? Yes, studies have definitely shown some differences. But a, what large part of it, the way that we understand it at the moment, goes to the gut microbiome because everyone's gut microbiome is like a thumbprint. So you may have a different response to the same healthy food that someone else, say, tolerates and does well eating. So it's very important as we've emerged with uh, all of the science of nutritional psychiatry to really have personalized nutritional psychiatry treatment plans. So, for example, I had a mother and daughter, uh, biologically related, you know, genetically related, all of that, who couldn't tolerate the same healthy food. One loved it and ate it every day. The other, other could not. So, you know, it's it's always important to personalize the recommendations to that individual once in my work, once I understand what their symptoms are, what they enjoy eating, and what the gaps are in their nutrition and the sort of nutrients that they're missing that they could uh, be eating more of. Why aren't more doctors talking about it to their patients? Is there any question that adopting certain diet changes will positively impact the brain? So let's start with the second part of that question first. There is, um, while we, we never want to overstate scientific evidence, I do feel that just in uh, the book, This Is Your Brain on Food, that I penned, you know, I looked at close to 900 scientific references and I included more than 550 so that the reader felt they, that everything they were reading about could be referenced and that there was actual scientific data behind this. And the, my strongest reason for doing that, Bob, was to help people understand that this is no longer a soft science. This is no longer just something we are guiding or, or chatting about. This is actually followed by scientific evidence, all of which I see growing as we move forward, as more research is done as we understand more about the gut microbiome as well. So that was, you know, I think help, helps us understand the framework. While not saying that, you know, food is going to cure you of a severe mental illness, there may be times when someone is actively suicidal, has mania, bipolar disorder, or acute psychosis or suicidal, and they may need acute treatment in an emergency room. They might need medication. A doctor really needs to evaluate that. But what I am saying is that food, nutrition, nutrients are a low-hanging fruit that we can absolutely use, whether we've been to see a doctor, spoken to a therapist, maybe we're just feeling a little blue, maybe we're just feeling ongoing anxiety and angst during the pandemic, maybe we're just not sleeping well. You know, about more than one-third of Americans are not sleeping well, especially over the past few years with all the ongoing anxiety that has continued. So food is powerful, and I think if it's one thing people should take away, it's that they can start to use it as a tool. Now, coming to the first part of your question as to why physicians are not adopting this, I think that newer ideas, newer medical science takes longer for, for more physicians to adopt. So, for example, functional medicine doctors, lifestyle medicine doctors, even cardiologists, many are seeing the value of making nutrition and dietary changes to really impact things like cardiac illness. You know, heart disease is still the number one killer in the United States. 
um, conditions like type 2 diabetes. And I think that it will be a while before all psychiatrists follow. But, you know, my mission in pioneering this field in the United States is really to start to help us integrate this information so that we, in addition to maybe pulling out that prescription pad, because a medication may be needed, I won't deny that. However, there are also these other holistic, functional, and integrated approaches we should be offering patients. And I have to tell you, Bob, a lot that just comes from my own cultural background, how I grew up and how I was raised, just integrating information from Ayurveda, from mindfulness, from yoga, from meditation, and healthy eating in addition to the hardcore scientific evidence. So bringing that together, I feel, will take time for more psychiatrists to adopt but also I'm encouraged that it's a growing movement. Very good. Can you describe some aha moments in your career as a nutritional psychiatrist? You know, Bob, I've told the story before, but it's one of my favorites simply because it, it so brings the point home and really was an aha moment for me. Early on in my career, I had begun to question why in my training, um, as learning everything about psychiatric medications, but nothing about whether my patients were exercising, what were they doing for any mindfulness practice, were they, you know, drinking enough water, how were they eating? And a patient very early on in my career kind of came in after I prescribed the medication maybe a few weeks before and was pretty upset with me. And being a timid younger resident, I, I was a little taken aback and, and he was accusing me of causing him to gain weight. Now, I could see with the medical uh, chart on the computer in front of me that it was not the case and that the data was very clear. He had already was in the overweight, sale, uh, overweight uh, zone, and so this medication had not added weight to him. But I allowed him to vent, and then I noticed he was carrying a large 20-ounce size of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Dunkin' Donuts is a favorite in Boston, and I, I pointed, it to, pointed to it, and I said, well, Bill, you know, I understand that you're upset, but tell me what you put in your coffee today. And he revealed that he had put a quarter cup of processed creamer and, you know, eight teaspoons of sugar. So I sat him down at the computer and we calculated it. Well, I'm not a huge calorie counter because I think the source of food, portion control, things like that are much more relevant in my practice. I did use this calculation to prove a point to him. And when he realized the number of empty calories he was consuming in that one cup of coffee that he was drinking, and sometimes he had more than one a day, he his eyes lit up and he, you know, he 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 brightened and he said, Oh, and and that was really was my aha moment because I could see the fact that I was getting through to him and that he felt empowered to make a decision about what he put in his coffee, how he could potentially get rid of wasting these calories, having a healthier choice in what he added to his coffee or not. And it, it was very powerful. And I always refer back to it because I, I thought to myself, wow, if he understood from a simple calculation because we discussed the nutrition of what he was drinking in his coffee, and he saw how powerful that was. What if more of my patients knew this? Yes. And what if they decided they could make some changes as to what may be changing from a breakfast cereal to a healthier oatmeal or, you know, from a processed food uh, or, a, or a donut at breakfast to a more wholesome, you know, chia pudding or something more nutritious? What, what, would, what would happen? And that's really what encouraged me along. This podcast has 
listeners from all over the world, many different cultures. Are there different cultural findings in relation to food and mood? Studies of the Mediterranean diet and the Mediterranean eating pattern has been associated with certain countries and areas of the world. I think that as science emerges and as more research is done, we will make more of those associations. But certainly this is an interesting and burgeoning area of research because you see studies you know, coming out from Japan, coming out from Italy, coming out from Australia, coming out from the United States. So I think that what as this emerges and as we study more, we'll be able to start to make those connections as well. I know the, the Western diet or the American diet here in the United States is probably one of the unhealthiest choices because of our reliance on processed foods, foods are, that are really high in flours and sugars and chemicals that stimulate reward centers of our brain, make us crave more of them. But this kind of diet may be causing some behavioral issues as well. Is that right? That is correct. You know, our reliance on processed, ultra-processed junk foods, fast foods, artificial sweeteners, um, you know, processed vegetable oils, all of these have initially been associated with things like cardiac disease, um, type 2 diabetes, really people's concern about their waistlines. But it turns out there's, there's science connecting all of these as well to damage the microbiome and development of inflammation in the gut, which leads to inflammation in the brain and an uptick of mental health symptoms. So it's really no longer just the standard American diet in relation to, say, type 2 diabetes. It's much more extensive and now understood that these are problematic uh, for conditions uh, like depression, anxiety, cognitive disorders, even and even sleep. There are probably a lot of people listening who may not feel depressed or anxious at all, but they simply want to know what they should be eating to enhance their brain function or to make them happier. So if we could, let's get really practical. What are like the top three things that we need to incorporate into a healthy mental diet that can make us feel happier? The first thing, first and foremost, uh, that I ask people to do is to swap. I use the word swap. So I ask them to swap something out because during the last several years, people have picked up, and I hear this every day, have picked up some un unhealthy habit that they wish that they could get rid of again. Mm -hmm. um, so the stress of the pandemic, it's, you know, people are leaning into the uh, ice cream every night or the extra glass of wine, or as you mentioned that as we began discussing this, I ask them to swap one habit that they've encountered or begun to notice in themselves. Um, and and that's, that's important because that's usually not the healthiest habit. Um, and if they know that, it's helpful for them to figure out what can I do instead of that, you know, bowl or two of ice cream at night or the, that extra glass of wine. Um, the second is to really lean into a plant-rich diet. And why Why do I say this? You know, it's just no longer what your doctor says about eating a leafy green salad or eating the colors of the rainbow, because there's really excellent science behind this now telling us that nutrients like folate and leafy greens are very important for brain health. Low folate levels are associated with depression. Um, the plant polyphenols from the different colors of fruits and vegetables. My favorite uh, fruit being berries because of the rich anthocyanins and things like blueberries. 
and all the colors of the vegetables, the different color peppers, the cucumbers, um, you, you know, you name it, you know, try something that you enjoy eating. Um, all of those have plant polyphenols that interact with the gut microbes, and they form really positive, healthy substances in the gut. These substances, they simply help our brain health ultimately because we now understand that this connection, there is this connection between the gut and the brain. So leaning into plant-rich foods, another reason to eat them is we get fiber. You know, many Americans obsess about how many grams of protein am I eating? But very many of us are getting enough protein. It's fiber that we're lacking. Large, uh, you know, database research studies have shown that only one in 10 Americans eat enough fruit and vegetables in their diet. And fruit, vegetables, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy whole grains are actually the best sources of fiber. You cannot get fiber from animal seafood proteins. So just another re reason to lean into some plant-rich foods on your plate. Um, the third nutrient uh, is omega-3 fatty acids because they have been proven and shown to help mood, to lower anxiety, and you get these from things like fatty fish, wild sockeye salmon, anchovy sardines. Plant-based sources uh, include things like walnuts, chia seeds, flax seeds. I will just say, Bob, that the, the shorter chain omega-3 and the plant-based sources is less available for that conversion um, in the brain. So I always say that if you don't eat seafood, you may want to consider something like an algal oil supplement uh, because you also get rich sources of, of omega-3s and things like um, sea algae and sea vegetables. So it's just, those are just a few ways to get started. There are several others. Some of my favorites are spices. People underestimate and don't even realize the power of spices, things like turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, uh, rosemary are all very powerful in terms of our brain health. So, you know, first swap out something bad and then start to add in some of these foods. And of course, uh, in my book, This Is Your Brain on Food, chapter has a list of foods to embrace and foods to avoid. So there are many, many, there are over 200 foods in the book that you can, that you can lean on for improving your mental health. You mentioned the, the foods that we should be eating more of, the plant-rich diet, the fibers, the fatty acids. What are just a few things that negatively affect our brain that we should be avoiding? One of the things that people don't realize is that they may be trying to cut back on sugar and they move to sugar-free or uh, low-sugar products, but many of those have artificial sweeteners. For the most part, artificial sweeteners are disruptive to the gut microbiome and not good for our mental well-being. So that's a big one because people sometimes move from a soda to diet soda. Right. And I, I commend them in trying to come off the sugar. So that's the right direction to move in. But it can also drive certain symptoms like anxiety. Um, another one, another large category that you won't be surprised by is the processed, ultra-processed junk foods and fast foods. You know, um, fast food french fries have added sugar, but you don't taste that. The research and development has uh, gone to the extent to know that they must be flavored in a way that we crave them, that they have added sugars in them. So, you know, many people don't realize they go through a drive through they upsize their, their fries, and then when they have the ups, the larger size, they finish the whole bag. These are because the foods are engineered to be hyper palatable and they lead to cravings. So that's one of the one of the issues with having your diet really only be fast foods. Another is processed vegetable oils, which are pro-inflammatory to your gut. Um, and another category is um, 
you know, fried foods. Uh, we we know that those are less healthy and trans fats in sort of shelf-stable baked goods that, um, that, that people, you know, that we often are eating. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for people to change bad habits. We've, we've <laughs> talked about it. But, but changing your diet seems like something that you can do. Uh, and if people want to feel happier and have healthier brains, how is the best way to get started to see if certain foods are going to improve your mood and make you feel better? Start slowly and steadily and build from there. So if you are noticing that you're feeling a little blue, a little down, you know, start with the foods in the chapter on depression and start to add a few, look at the list, add a few that you like. Maybe you like seafood, you know, maybe you like a really great salad every day. Um, But whatever it is, you can start building it in as a slow and steady habit and work from there. You know, start with one thing you can change. Maybe it's adding in a spice that you haven't used. Um, uh, And then I I would say every few days or every week, build in an additional habit to watch and see how you feel. Because ultimately, my goal in working with someone is that the habits they start to build in become part of their lifestyle. And they automatically make these better choices when they go to eat out, when they go to the supermarket, and they incorporate it as a healthy habit rather than something, you know, which is more of that fad diet, let's lose five pounds before a family wedding or an award show or, you know, the way that things like that get portrayed. Um, so it's, it's really about sustaining these as part of your lifestyle. And if people decide to to make the change in their diets, how long does it typically take before we'll see an improvement in our moods? Very often the um, relationship between food and the gut, we understand from research that the gut takes about 28 days to heal. But in reality, in clinical practice, when people are starting to make these slow and steady habit changes towards healthier foods that they're eating. I've seen people call me up within a week and say that they're starting to sleep better. They're feeling less brain fog at work in the afternoon um, and, and notice symptoms about feeling even, you know, happier or more uplifted, less, uh, less down, uh, less anxious. So although we know that proper gut healing takes about 28 days in the average person, the reality is that I've really noticed people feeling these changes quite uh, quite a lot sooner. I know that you're you really don't uh, believe in specific kinds of diets, but what are your thoughts on being vegetarian versus eating meat? Is one better than the other when it comes to behavioral health? This really goes back to the uniqueness of the microbiome, and you you are right, Bob. I am diet agnostic, meaning that. I uh, feel that someone coming in to see me, uh, my goal really is to help them improve whatever diet they're eating, not to tell them to give up one diet or or, or pick up the next. Um, the issue is that people are unique. They, you know, my microbiome may be different from the next person, and we know this. So certain studies have shown that, that if you're a vegetarian, maybe there are some levels of depression. But other studies have also shown that a plant-rich diet alleviates depression. And this, again, goes back to the state of nutrition science, the research. I think on any day that I quote something, someone else can quote the opposite. Therefore, the, the way forward in nutritional psychiatry is really to find 
the plan, the foods, the nutrients, the, as I like to say, the nutritional psychiatry plate that works for you, your unique microbiome, and that will alleviate your symptoms. And that's why it's become so highly personalized. So no, I don't believe that eating meat or giving it up will be, you know, the cure or the solution. It's really finding the proper um, almost the, the 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 proper elements of food that you need on your plate, the proper food groups, the nutrients that you're missing, the vitamins that you need, um, and some of those basic pillars that I speak about that you may need to fill in to improve your mental well-being. Talking about these different kinds of diets, the South Beach diet, keto diet, the Atkins diet, Mediterranean diet, there's they go on and on, and some of them have become quite controversial. You know, some said that fats are bad and carbohydrates are good. But today you read more that low carb and high fat diet, uh, like a keto diet, is even more successful for treating things like anxiety. Why the change? And is that true? It it comes back to personal uh, personalization. It comes back to the microbiome. Certainly, the ketogenic diet, there's some data in certain conditions. It was originally used in seizure disorders. I speak about it in my book related to bipolar disorder in certain cases and certain conditions. It is not though a one-size-fits-all approach. So a certain there have been some case studies and individuals who did well on ketogenic diet, but this is not globally accepted as yet. I will say there's ongoing research and we need to review that research as it comes out because I think it's very promising. But here's my issue with any extreme diet. And it's not, I'm not specifically picking on the ketogenic diet. I'm just saying that when you ask people to exclude certain food groups and, and, and add an excess of another food group, this kind of imbalance is what often gets my, certainly my clients into trouble because they feel they can't eat something or they have, they have to eat something else. And these rules get in, us into these diet wars and food dilemmas that confuse people more and more. So rather than have them undergo all of that, working with them on a one-to-one uh, individual basis and trying to figure out what helps them and their condition becomes important. So there are some case studies in the ketogenic diet. There's information where some doctors will say that is a cure for something. Uh, you know, I think creating hard and fast rules is very, very difficult to do. And we really shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be at that point um, until we are 100% sure. And I don't think that medical science is ever that way. So giving doctors, giving careful recommendations, consulting with their peers, understanding the research and individuals, knowing that they have a personalized recommendation becomes very important to their, to their health. We hear more and more about dementia. Is there something we should be eating to keep our brains healthy and ward off dementia? Is there something general? Um, so one of the one of the general things is to add in some spices, to uh, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper, rosemary have some good evidence. Um, the other is I. Th- a feeling that I think the mistake we're making with cognitive disorders is that we're thinking about it as a condition in our parents, our grandparents, and older folk. We are part of that discussion because the issue with the things that we can change in cognitive health, if we're eating poorly and we've developed neuroinflammation, inflammation and neuroinflammation really being seen as seen as the basis to ongoing changes that we we can we can alter by how we're eating. We don't have a 
medication cure for Alzheimer's. But we certainly know that reversing neuroinflammation by how we're eating and changing our diet is very powerful and helps. So right there is a way that we can start to improve our chances um, for better cognitive health just by how we're eating. So anti-inflammatory foods, a plant-rich diet, adding in the right spices, uh, keeping active, uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, there's a, this is also holistic and, and mindfulness meditation, uh, spending time outdoors, uh, exercise, all of these things become important too. You wrote that vitamins play key roles in preventing and easing depression, and the most important are folate, B9, and B12. Uh, do you recommend supplements to your patients for a healthier brain, or is it better to get those vitamins by eating the right foods? It's, it's always better to get these nutrients uh, in foods and to try that first, but that doesn't mean there isn't a place for supplements. For example, saffron has a lot of good evidence for improvement of mood, but the amount of saffron you use when you're cooking is much less than would have been used in the studies uh, in a supplement form. So there's a good example of when you might speak to your doctor about a saffron supplement, because there's really a a good amount of evidence for improvement in in mood. so I think there's a place for supplementation because our diets are never perfect. And uh, I also ask people to start with food first and then fill in the gaps with supplements they might need by speaking to their doctors, checking if they are low on a certain vitamin or missing a certain nutrient in their diet uh, that, that can be replaced through a supplement. Yes, I, I read in your book that, or I, maybe I've heard you speak of before, but you said that one shouldn't just assume that you need more magnesium or a certain vitamin and just start taking supplements, that you really should talk to your doctor and test, don't guess. <laughs> That's exactly right, but I always say test, don't guess, you know, because we don't know what what our level of magnesium is until we check it. And uh, the body is, you know, the body and the nutrients, the electrolytes, the vitamins and minerals, the micronutrients, the macronutrients, everything needs needs to work in harmony. Um, So without knowing that there's something out of balance, we shouldn't just reach out and take a supplement because, you know, something like magnesium has um, is involved in about 300 biochemical reactions in the body. So these are not things to be taken lightly. Um, and, and this is where food can be an easy way to start introducing a certain nutrient. So, you know, in Chapter 11, I go through a list of brain foods, uh, the acronym brain foods, but I also list different uh, vitamins and where you can find these in food. And the idea is to start to incorporate these into your diet slowly and steadily not to only eat a certain food because of a certain vitamin. Mix them in in a more general way as you enjoy foods that you eat. That's, that's really the best way to make these habits sustainable. Can you speak to the, the, the home nutrition test to, to see what people are allergic to? You read about them, you hear about them. Are they a good idea? The information is variable. One should always really be discussing this with your doctor. And if you're concerned about an allergy, you really should speak to an allergist and your primary care doctor can refer you to one. This is because tests done done in the hospital are are looking for certain antigens and, and tests that they will perform and do. 
you know, uh, maybe an at-home test is, is a way to get started, but they may be unreliable, and only a doctor can help you interpret that information. So I think the wise thing to do if you're concerned is to make sure that you have a physician involved. Um, you know, test, don't guess, and, and do it that way um, so that you are certain of an information that you that you have. Because an allergy is a very serious thing, and an allergy can can actually cause death. So you want to be careful about these uh, about these things. And, you know, it's the reason that people carry an EpiPen because an EpiPen can prevent death from a life-threatening peanut allergy, for example. So always best to just include your physician in this discussion. Very good. Any closing thoughts when, when it comes to, to food and your mental health? What's the most important thing that you want people to understand? That the food you eat is in some ways more powerful than medications you can take. There is a place for medication, and you should discuss that with your doctor. But food is in your home. It is within your reach. It is something that you eat. You eat several meals a day, and you need to almost incorporate food and nutrition as part of your armor to improve and fortify your own mental health. Dr. Uma Naidu, thank you so much for your your time and your expertise. This is going to help so many people. Thank you so much, Bob. I really enjoyed the conversation. Obviously, we can't control our genes or certain things that happen to us in our lives that can affect our mental health. But as Dr. Uma said, diet is only one tool in the toolbox. It shouldn't replace medication if needed. So if you're feeling depressed or anxious, talk to a medical professional. But obviously, there are things that we can and should be doing to optimize our health and our happiness. Dr. Uma Naidu's book, once again, is titled, This is Your Brain on Food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more. And it's just another tool that you can use to improve your mental well-being. Many people cannot believe how much better they feel both physically and emotionally when they make changes to their diets. HPE's For Real Life initiative offers a wide range of options to help you learn about this and many other things that can impact your mental well-being and happiness. As always, our employee assistance program is there for both team members and their families. And many different wellness resources are easily available to you online whenever you need them. If you're outside the U.S., you'll find those on HPE's global wellness page. And if you're in the U.S., you'll find them on HPE Wellness. My thanks once again to Dr. Uma Naidu for sharing her expertise today. And most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you'll recommend our podcast to a friend or colleague. Until next time, please take care of yourself. Let's talk again soon.